Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Genesis 2 and verse 23. Amen. Tonight in verses 24 and 25 as well. Amen. This evening. Hallelujah. Um, we started out close to the beginning of this year. Um, ministered on a Sunday morning about family modeled faith. And, uh, and from that time forward, I said something about think that this year may be somewhat centered around family. And here in the closure of the year, I feel as though that I'll probably direct some attention back toward the family uh, through different means as on Sunday morning, the God created them male and female. And tonight, I'm kind of just going to light on marriage here for a little bit tonight, and considering the role of our parental responsibilities and stuff probably before this year is out. And uh, just trying to focus back on the family. Uh, overall, I think the family has uh, went through a litany of hits, so to speak. Um, and so I think it's good to go back to the good old Bible basics and undergird it with the word of the Lord and with scripture, amen, as a, as a place and a compass to uh, guide and direct our lives by and help us navigate our lives. Genesis 2 and verse 23, the Bible said, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed, and were not ashamed. Amen. This evening, I'd like just to teach here tonight, just like to teach along this subject matter, directives for marriage. I'd like to be my subject matter, directives mandates directives whatever you wish to call it directives for marriage here this evening god we love you lord jesus once again we pray oh lord jesus over this word god that's been spoken lord god and read in our hearing tonight i pray lord mark every bit of error from my mouth lord let me remember what needs to be remembered lord speak what needs to be spoken i pray oh god that we could just lean into the word of the lord this evening for God, a, a good, Lord, guidance, a good, Lord, peace of guidance, Lord, for our lives and our families, Lord, in our church, God, in our, Lord, community and for our world. I pray, Jesus, today, God, uh, family being at the very epicenter of all of that, I pray, oh, Lord, today, help us, God, to safeguard it. Lord, talk about it, Lord Jesus, our marriages and our homes and our children. God, I pray, Lord, we need your hand of protection upon us ever before, certainly in this hour. Lord, and I appreciate it in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. And the church say amen. Amen. You may be seated tonight. The lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We talk about marriage and you talk about two individuals that uh, come together under the sanction of God and holy matrimony, taking vows that are to be revered for the rest of their days or the rest of their lives. Uh, there is something that comes into play there that is oftentimes spoken of, and that is the idea or concept of love. And probably more times than not, whenever we speak of two uh, young people that are coming into relationship with one another that are looking down the road at the approaching marriage, there is a strong motivation for marriage of romantic, what we might even term romantic love, particularly here in North America. And it's very, very significant. 
and perhaps romantic love in and of itself and viewing marriage as just a combination of two people that have fell into that romantic love might be a good reason, not good reason, but might be a significant reason uh, that there are many divorces that happen in America today because romantic love maybe is concentrated on first and foremost and not understanding marriage to be more than just two people that are per se having feelings of affection toward each other in a moment of time. But marriage is also a very, very legal covenant. And I want to call it a covenant rather than a contract, a very legal covenant, amen, that's, that's illustrated in the word of God. But in today's society, love trumps all, so it seems. Love trumps all. Uh, many people use uh, the idea or the concept that if love exists between two people, then that's justification for a lot of things if they have love. Uh, if, you, if there's love, then you can uh, commit adultery if you love the person. I'm talking about modern society. Uh, you can commit fornication if you love the person. That's what we all do under the umbrella of love. And at times it appears that many in our society believe that love is the motivation and therefore no one should question their behavior if it's done in the name and in the sake of love. But as you and I know, love has its ups and downs. And love is many times uh, attributed to a feeling and love is also a choice. Someone perhaps said it best, talking about marriage, that marriage is love's hangover. Marriage is love's hangover. And while it's vitally important to have feelings and to have love and to generate feelings of love for one another, I think there is another facet to a relationship between a man and a woman, someone that's going to enter into a covenant of marriage that supersedes even this concept of love. And that is this word, very important. Write it down if you want to. It's called commitment. Commitment. I believe perhaps even greater than love, commitment is successful or is needful, rather, for a successful marriage and a successful home and family. Many people in the word, or in the world, rather, label Genesis chapter number 3, verses 14 through 19. I'm not reading them, but Genesis 3, 14 through 19, many of them, and even in your Bibles, you may even find it labeled that. They labeled that, that, that grouping of scriptures together as the curse because it is contained within those verses that the serpent was cursed. We know particularly that the ground was cursed, but also in there, rather than being cursed, Adam and Eve, they were basically forecasted the predictions that were going to happen in their life in reality as a result of sin that had entered into the world. God made some statements to Adam and Eve that were more so predictions than they were punishments for Adam and Eve. Because sin, whenever sin enters the picture in and of itself, it has the ability to produce most times negative results. God says because of sin entering into the garden with Adam and Eve, what's coming upon them isn't so much punishment as it is predictions or the results, if you will, of sin entering into the world and entering into this life. And so God predicted the outcome of Adam and Eve based upon the characterization of sin. The Bible says in Genesis 3.16, one of those predictions that God made upon Adam and Eve was this. He said unto, unto, the, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy, speaking of the woman's desire, shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now the word desire here is kind of particular in Scripture. 
Here's, here's the idea that it carries if you study out this word in the uh, original languages. The word desire carries the idea of a ravenous bee seeking to overcome its prey. <laughs> he says the woman's desire shall be to her husband. But then to back that up, it says that he, the husband that is, shall rule over thee or rule over the woman. And the word translated rule then refers to exercising dominion. So she's going to be as a ravenous bee seeking to overcome her husband. And he is going to be seeking dominion over her. And so with that being said, born from this first initiation of sin in the garden is a picture of humanity as it long time has been. And that is the long time battle between the sexes of the husband and the wife, the male and the female, where each is trying to dominate the other. And in an age, and this is, I don't think this is hidden in a corner somewhere, but in the age when, when divorce is common and relatively, by and large, easy to obtain, and more acceptable, socially acceptable now, perhaps than it's ever been, still with all of that being the case, that as our backdrop and background, my understanding from a few years ago, the Census Bureau did a study, and they said 73% of those who have, ever, who have ever been married are still married to their first spouse. And that's quite encouraging. As a matter of fact, they said the 28% who aren't includes everyone who was married for many years until even a spouse died. And so what I understand from this, there have been a lot of things. We know if it's a 50-50 thing, you know, and, and, and as I've done some reading and studying, and a, a man published a book called Good News About Marriage, is that a lot of those numbers and t- statistics were corrupt and untrue. And so in reality, divorce isn't the greatest threat to marriage then, I understand, because the people are still married by and large, 72% of them or 3% of them are still married to their first spouse. So divorce isn't the greatest threat to marriage. What I'm understanding to be a greater threat to marriage is this discouragement what marriage needs today is hope because people are entering into uh, this life of marriage with all of the doubt gloom and despair around them saying it's not going to last it's not going to make it and all they have in their background is you know what we're just going to give it our best shot and if it goes left or right hey there's been a lot of others that happened to too And so what marriage needs is hope. Marriage needs a fresh breath of hope breathed into it because understanding very well that if us as a body of Christ, if there's anybody that should be offering hope to the marriage union and the institution of marriage, it should be the church, amen? Should be the church not just for spiritual life but even for the married lives of people that come in here, amen? And so when we consider marriage, we consider marriage, Marriage, that primal relationship, that primal relationship of the family is the one, that one relationship between husband and between wife. And God's answer to man's aloneness that we read in the book of Genesis that I oftentimes find very, very significant. God's answer to that, well, you're alone, Adam. I'll create you some parents so that you can have communion with mom and dad. You don't have a mom, dad? That's, I, I got an answer for you. You're alone. I'll give you some parents. That's not what he did. He didn't, he didn't bring the solution or the answer uh, to Adam's aloneness by saying, you know what? What you need is a kid. I'll, let, I'll, I'll make sure that you have some little slobbering kid hanging around you. That would be the cure. No. God could have done either of those things, I suppose. But the thing that he gave unto Adam for the answer to his aloneness was a wife, 
Someone say a woman. A woman, a wife. And the Bible, it speaks, whenever it speaks of the beast of the field and the fowl of the air, the Bible speaks to us in Genesis number two that God formed or that he molded the animals. But the thought that God conveyed whenever the Bible says that God made he, him, Adam, a woman, from my understanding, the thought that is conveyed in the original language is that he, woman, that is, this woman that he made is, is as an artist producing a masterpiece. That whenever the Bible says God made woman, it carries the connotations as though he being an artist that is making a masterpiece, if you please. So he's just molding and forming animals, but it is the artist's masterpiece whenever he created the woman. And as one, I think, fellow said uh, sometime of years gone by, he said, a woman ought to be better looking than a man. He said, after all, God practiced all man first, and the woman was his second edition of mankind. She's version 2.0. Amen. She's version 2.0. And whenever you look in scriptures, you think how much God uh, placed emphasis just even inspiring Moses to write the book of Genesis. Moses spent about six verses inspired of the Holy Ghost on the creation of woman. While whenever you start to survey the scriptures, spent virtually, if you want to count the one in Genesis 1, one in Genesis 2, spent virtually only one verse on man, but six verses by inspiration of the Holy Ghost about the creation of this woman. So she is a very important, pretty important part of man's life, or at least I should say should be. And she definitely is an important part of this institution, this covenant that we call marriage. And so when God brought Eve unto Adam, understanding that she was created from a rib that was taken from Adam, in a certain sense, God was just bringing to Adam the other part of himself. Amen. Just another part of himself, that rib back to him. And so that generates a question for you and I. And that is this, how can something that came from me be so difficult at times to be compatible with me? Yeah, some, I, hear, I hear some men that kind of kept down on their amens right there. You are wise men from afar. Amen. You are wise men. For one, that rib was not coming back to him in the same form or the same context that it was taken from him. It has, though, however, been a part of him, and so then it must be capable in some degree of being compatible with him, being that it came from him. But it would take a lot of time and a lot of effort, and might I say it takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of effort. It takes what that word I spoke earlier, it takes commitment for that compatibility. The American Psychology of Association uh, website, they list nine psychological tasks that research has shown must be completed to assure a healthy marriage. And unsurprisingly, folks, it's really kind of neat that all nine also are found in the Word of God, found in Scripture. I wonder sometimes if they consulted the Word in order to generate this list. Nevertheless, of no surprise, though they're found also in Scripture, but also not to our surprise, all these nine different things that must be completed to assure a healthy marriage, all of them, all of them is no quick fix. Now the rubber meets the road. It would be because we live in the instantaneous world, flip a coin, turn a key, push a button, it's done, it's considered, so on and so forth. 
But whenever we talk about marriage, I tell people all times whenever they're getting married and they go through any type of marriage, uh, marriage counseling with me, I said, this is how you spell marriage. W-O-R-K. Work. That's how you spell marriage. There is no quick fix. Because in this, this process, this process sometimes can be very long. Amen. Because we enter into a, a relationship with one another. Maybe having a little bit of compatibility. We both like the color red. Oh, isn't that wonderful? And we both want a ranch-style house. That's grand. We both would like to have 3.5 children. I don't know how you do that, but nevertheless, <laughs> that's wonderful. But what happens is we enter into this relationship, and we begin to start testing our compatibility with one another. And some people think, you know what, I can ensure that everything's going to be okay if I could test this before we ever get married. And the best way to test this is if perhaps we live together before we get married. And they think then living together before committing to marriage is a good way to find out whether or not they are compatible. Bridal Magazine in recent days has said, estimated that two-thirds of all couples now getting married live together prior to the wedding. Now, research has consistently shown that cohabitating prior to marriage significantly increases the probability of divorce. Now, no one go on saying, he says, if you cohabitate, you're going, to be, you're going to be getting a divorce. I didn't say that. It says that it increases. Your risk goes higher. If you try to do that, second of all, and this isn't for tonight, that's not biblical. Amen. It's not biblical. The Old Testament law in the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament law was so convinced about the time and the effort that needed to be involved into the melding of two lives, husband and wife together, that in those beginning moments after they were married, so important that they, they, they make provisions for safeguarding the relationship with one another and getting started on the right foot, that the law in the Old Testament commanded that there be a one-year honeymoon, so to speak. Amen. Yeah. Hey, a one-year honeymoon period during which the groom was to live freely. He was exempt from any type of military service or duty. He was exempt from any type of public business. His lone responsibility was to attend to that new bride. Wouldn't you like to have a year off after you got married? I know they say use the first year as a hard year. Some people probably thought they maybe you missed a few days because of your first year of marriage. I don't know. But the Bible says this, the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 24 and 5, when a man have taken a new wife, and I just want to explain this. Everybody say, a new wife? <laughs> that word means that this is something not previously existed for him. All right? So whenever a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year. There it is. And shall cheer up. This is really misleading as well. He just got married to this lady, and you got to spend a year getting her happy. And she's already, the man felt like she's done the wrong decision right here. No. And he, what it means is to cheer up or to rejoice with. To rejoice with. Relish in the moment, if you will, with his wife, which he hath taken. So God, seeing the importance of marriage in the days following that, so vitally important uh, to the longevity of that marriage, and the fortification and the defense of that marriage, he's seen that it was more vital for the fortification and the defense of marriage for long-term health 
than it was for the nation of Israel to have any defense of their land from that per se groom or per se that individual. In other words, he wanted that man for a year more so defending his marriage than defending the country because overall, God felt like him defending his marriage for that first year will have better payoffs than if that man was even on the military field trying to defend the nation of Israel. The Bible says, Genesis 2.24, as I read in your hearing, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and they shall, and, and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Now, there are about four directives, I believe, for marriage contained in this one verse. And these are the four, I believe, illustrated in verse number 24. There needs to be a severance. There needs to be a permanence. There needs to be a unity. And there needs to be intimacy. Or I would just kind of break it down like this. Leave, cleave, unite, ignite. Okay? <laughs> Leave, cleave, unite, ignite. When we consider, though, the step of severance, the first step in forming a godly marriage, he said, the man shall leave his mother and his father. The first step in forming a godly marriage is separation. What separation? A separation from the familiar, the family that you had up to that point of time. There should be, to a certain degree, a dynamic change in the pre-existing relationships you had before you forged the relationship with your husband or with your wife. Amen. You don't have to agree with me. I'm just talking about the Bible. I'm just a mail carrier here. Amen. Because, by and large, there's problems whenever you try to maintain the same identical relationship with mommy and daddy and try to create a new relationship with your spouse. Mm -hmm. Whether that is the one getting married initiating it or mommy and daddy warming their way in. The first, and I'm just going to refer to them as the APA, the American Psychological Association. The first of the APA's nine tasks to assure a healthy marriage is this. Separate emotionally from the family you grew up in, not to the point of estrangement, but enough so that your identity is separate from that of your parents and your siblings. What? You are starting to create your own life. Now, by and large, my wife got married. There are some things that we, she carried over from her family. There's some things I carried over from my family. But our family is not a mere image of hers nor a mere image of mine. They have bits and pieces of both of our families and things that are new, peculiar only to us. Starting our family. Now, the problem occurs whenever parents try to pressure upon that newfound couple that they need to be just like they were. Or the other set of parents try to press out on them. Or the husband says, we need to be like my mom and dad. Or the wife do vice versa. No, there's an, inadvertently there's going to be pieces and parts of who you were and the culture that you grew up in that's going to come along with you. But don't be afraid to hone your own path and way as a family as well because you need to leave in certain respects so that you are enabled to cleave to that newfound individual that's in your life. And get this. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later, and I hope I can get through all this tonight. But consider this. That person that you marry, you are going to spend the majority of your years with. More so even than your mom and dad. The time you had with them, you're going to have with that person if everything, you know, in life is well. 
even more so than the kids that you have. You're going to have more years with that person than what you'll have with your children, than what you've had with your mom and dad. It's going to be you, that man, and that woman in that marriage. Someone say amen. That's okay. <clears throat> whenever we look in the Old Testament, biblical times, the model from at least the time whenever David was king and during his kingdom and his rule and his reign, during that, that time in the Bible, each family's housing was to be physically separated from their parents and from their siblings. As a matter of fact, there were during the time of the patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, during their, their, this time, it seemed like they had extended families and the extended generations that was a living among them or around them, but they took great care that even in a compound of Abrahamites, <laughs> in a compound of Abrahamites, that each had their own individual tent or a place that they could close off that they could call their own if you'll remember whenever Isaac and Rebecca inherited uh, his mother's tent she had died they inherited his and he brought Rebecca into his mother's tent that was going to become theirs and it was going to be a place although among and around the rest of his family was going to be set apart and different from all the others they were going to have their unique place among the family among everybody else that they could close the door Oh, yes. That you could close the door and you could make it your own. And Jesus, whenever Jesus made the statement in John 14, 2, and he said, in my father's house are many mansions, he was referring to a custom of that day, a custom of the wealthy families. And wealthy families, by and large, had separate apartments, so to speak, that in the family compound, they would have separate compartments for their married children that they could call their own, that were separated from mom and dad, separated from their siblings. Because why, why is all of this? I mean, why, why during the kingdom of David would they have their own place? And why, why would they have their own tent during the patriarchs? And why would God refer to it even in the New Testament? Because I think it underscores the importance that newly married people need their own place. Now I'll admit to you, confession, the first three months of Sister McGee and I's marriage, we lived with my parents. I'm glad it was only three months. If I had to do it all over again, I probably wouldn't have done it until I knew I would have been right on my own. You understand what I'm talking about, Brother Mason? Amen. Why? Because, yeah, there were doors to the room that we inhabited, but you try to put two ladies and two men that are married to the respective individuals in the same house, and you might love each other to death. But before it all said, then you might be dying. <laughs> Amen. It seems like a real good, a real good a fix to a problem, but you don't understand by trying to fix a problem, you may be creating three or four and putting stress. Oh, you're putting stress on the new marriage. Let me tell you that. Put stress on old marriage. Mm-hmm. Put stress on old marriage. You already worked through, you've been married for 25 years. You already worked through some of your problems. Now they're having some of the problems that you had and you want to jump in and be a referee and umpire. Whenever they had their own place, they could do that without you looking over their shoulder. Amen. And so, <laughs> they, they, they try to keep away from living under the same roof because we're trying to keep the sanctity of marriage for both of those, to protect those. Amen. 
because above all, the child's first loyalty and commitment now at this point in time in their life should be to their spouse, not to their parent. Doesn't mean you love them any less. You still honor them as the scripture says that we should honor our parents. That doesn't, that doesn't remove that aspect of it. But your commitment should be here. That one that is now, you two became one. You came together and you became one flesh. Now you came from your mom and daddy's flesh, but you've never been one flesh with them. But you are that, that woman or that man. Another of the APA's tasks is addressed to new parents. It says, Embrace the daunting role of parenthood and absorb the impact of a baby's entrance into marriage. What's it talking to us about? Well, whenever dynamics change in marriage, whenever you have children, dynamics change. What I mean is this, is that you got to learn how to be a parent, but not at the expense of being a spouse. Did that make sense? You got to learn how to be a parent and a spouse at the same time. You can't just self-absorb yourself totally with the parental role and forget that you're a husband or a wife also. That's just as, just as important because becoming a mother or father does not end you being a husband or a wife. No, it's called now you multitask. You're now a parent and a wife or you're now a parent and a husband. And sure, it does many times complicate things, but what you just got to learn is to find the balance in those roles. And you can be a good person parent and a good wife or a good parent and a good husband both at the same time you can you don't have to feel like you have to give it all over here or over here. you don't have to do you can find balance you got to find what that balance is for you your baby you your husband you your wife you got to find that balance that is right for your home amen and so whenever we have when, when we have that that live-in relationship that hands-on relationship or a husband or a wife again it is the only one that will remain that will remain beyond those intensive parenting years. Someday, you're hopeful, maybe, that that kid's going to reach an age, maybe they went through college, you're going to find the love of their life, they're going to get married, and they're going to move on. You're hoping, you're hoping that that's going to take place. Well, whenever that does take place, there's only one relationship that remains in that home. It's you and mama, or it's you and daddy. It's that husband, and it's that wife. That's the reason why I've heard, and I, I'm not to that stage yet, but I know what my parents say. I know what I've heard other couples say that have the empty nest syndrome. That is this. They almost have to get reacquainted with each other all over again. Why? Because the focus has been so much on the kids. Now we got to learn how to get focused back on each other all over again. And so whenever all those other relationships are gone, guess who's there? And mom and papa. It's husband and wife. And so that's the reason why you must not lose total concentration upon that relationship even through the, the years of kids because whenever the kids are gone, it's mom and dad again. It's husband and wife back all over again. So you've got to be nurturing that along the journey, nurturing that along the way. Amen. Children are here for a moment. Our spouse is going to be with us for the most of our lives. So from severance, we also, though, need a permanence. The word translated in Genesis 2.24, it's called cleave. It's translated, it means to become joined together or to stick together. It all falls back somewhat on that word commitment once again. That you're committed in spite of circumstances. You're committed in spite of the highs, the lows, the disgruntledness, the uh, differing of opinions. You're committed. You, you have cleaved. You have become stuck together. You become joined together. Paul's instruction to the Corinthian believers 
And he received this instruction from the Lord. He says, it's not I that speak, but the Lord at this particular journey in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. I'm not reading them, but I'm just giving to you for reference. His instructions that he gave that came from the Lord can basically be summed up in this statement. And I believe this is overall an overarching, and I know it is, it's the word of God, overarching good, good uh, advice that he gave. He said, if, basically, if you're married, stay married. That's the overarching, that's the overarching uh, advice that he gave in those verses. If you're married, stay married. Another task on the APA list is to confront and master the inevitable crisis of life. In other words, whenever crises enters your home, loss of job, loss of child, finances tight, a, a myriad of different things that could come in. Crisis in a marriage is either going to strengthen it or if you allow it to help destroy it, all based upon each of yours response to it and to each other. Because sometimes when crisis enters a home, what we like to do, the, hum, the human response is this, this happened for a reason and probably for somebody's reason. This happened because you didn't do such and such or you should have done such and such. And so when crisis enters the home, we want to lay the blame game on somebody and what do we often do? Do it to the one that we, they say, love the most. Well, we'd have enough money around here if you didn't spend all the time on whatever. Fill in the blank because you already did, all right. And so whenever crisis enters, it's either going to strengthen or it's going to help destroy. And all of that, again, goes back to what type of level of commitment that you have to one another to all this. The APA also states that maintain the strength of the marital bond in the face of adversity, all right? The marriage should be a safe haven in which partners are able to express their differences. Wow. Yeah. Marriage should be a place where I can bring my anger, my frustration, my disagreements, my difference of opinion to you, and within the confines of my marriage, I should be able to feel safe enough that I can tell you about my frustration tell you about my anger, tell you about my difference of opinion without my nose being cut off in spite of my face. It should be a safe place, a safe haven where that can take place. And in doing so, whenever we can uh, discuss those things very rationally without, being, without showing who we really are, that whenever we finish and we've accomplished that, that we walk away then from that episode individually stronger, our marriage stronger. Rather than just being angry and just being flare up and just fight, 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 fight. Three days later, still fight, 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 fight. I'm not talking to you. He's not talking to me. You can cook your own dinner, blah, 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 blah. Because commitment says we got a disagreement. Commitment says I'm going to try to look through your eyes. Commitment says I think we can find some type of uh, compromise or agreement to work out this conflict and while doing so maintain respect for one another. Commitment, permanence, permanence, cleave. Number three, unity. found this very interesting if you'll indulge me just here for a moment. Unity. In a 1987 study, subjects were shown a random array of photographs of 24 men and 24 women all white newlyweds who lived in Chicago or Wisconsin and who were between 25 and 30 years of age. Another group 
was shown photographs of the same 48 people after 25 years of marriage. I'm just pausing there because you could start drawing some conclusions and they're almost funny. The instructions were this, to match the men with the women who most closely resembled them. Husbands and wives were correctly matched significantly more often by the group shown the photos of the couples after 25 years of marriage. And perhaps more interestingly, the rate of successful matches was substantially greater for couples who reported that their marriage was happy. The researcher that conducted this, this, this study, this professor, he concluded that the increase in facial, you ever heard someone say, I tell you what, the longer they're married, they just look more like each other. And you've seen it. I've seen, I've seen, I've got, I can't believe that they're not relatives. Well, we got, this is against the law. That <laughs> you start looking like one another. But he said that facial similarity, it increases, resulting from that wrinkles form on the face in the same places due to decades of shared experiences and shared emotions that exercise the same facial muscles. So you, if, when you're a husband and wife, you experience some of the same things. You laugh at the same time. You cry at the same time. You frown. You, you, have these, you experience these different things at the same time. And so the initial study has been repeated several times at different institutions showing that married couples actually start out with facial similarities because we are subconsciously attracted to people physically like us. And the similarities increase shortly after marriage because we're experiencing the same things and having similar emotions to them. Amen. So there's a unity all in itself. But somewhere between these two people, husband and wife, they form or forge a new identity made up of being that one flesh, but at the same time, they're still the individuals to a certain degree that they were. And so they share an identity because now they're a husband and wife husband and wife identity that exists and you got to find what that identity is for you and your spouse and at the same time keep intact if you will who you were it's not like all of a sudden if you were an outgoing person you're going to become introvert so to speak that's not going to happen but you got to find what the identity of your marriage and your home is going to be another of the APA list of psychological tasks is to build togetherness based on a shared intimacy and identity while at the same time set boundaries to protect each partner's autonomy in other words the bible says that they shall be one flesh amen marriages do not experience that oneness or that unity if you don't experience that if you don't get to that degree of becoming one at one with your husband or with your wife you don't experience that you don't find that fulfillment in there what will happen is this there will be a marriage that will be easily tempted to seek the marital fulfillment that they should find in their marriage and some will find it in work, some will find it in their children, some will find it in their friends, some will find it in their church, some will find it in entertainment, some sadly will even find it in an extramarital affair. If you don't find that oneness, that one fleshment within that other spouse, that man or that wife, that husband, or, or that other person, you'll try to find it somewhere. And many times it will be outside of the covenant of marriage. Amen. Why, I don't understand why that guy stays working. He, he, he devotes himself to working extra hours at the job. I'll tell you why. 
He's trying to find his fulfillment at work. He had rather he, he feels more fulfilled there than he would to go home to his spouse. I don't understand why this one you did all the time just pandering the kids. It seems whatever they want, everything to, because they're finding their fulfillment there than they are rather than their spouse. Amen. Why are they going on? Why would they have an extramarital effect? Because they're finding that one fleshment fulfillment somewhere else than where it should rightfully be with that spouse. And so in reality, if we have this one flesh mentality, as Scripture says, it happens and occurs, then there's something that we need to wise up on, and that is this. If a husband speaks ill about his wife, he's condemned himself in saying those very words concerning this one fleshman. If a wife is all the time just criticizing her husband and calling him this and that and the other, let me tell you, she's saying something about her own character because the twain have become one. Calling her own character into question. The APA tells us that we should nurture and comfort each other, satisfying each other's needs for dependency and offering continuing encouragement and support both in private and in public. They say use humor and laughter to keep things in perspective and avoid boredom and isolation. Let me tell you something. Humor in our home has carried us through some stormy times. I don't know about yours. It's taken the edge off, Sister Rhonda, just being able to laugh together and for one, not taking each of us too seriously. You can become a stick in the mud in marriage and everything is just regimen and it's so serious and this and that. Sometimes you got to laugh at mistakes. You got to laugh at your own times of being coming frustrated or upset with the other. Don't take yourself too seriously. Amen. Uh, you, your surroundings or whatever may be happening to you. Don't, don't do it. Amen. Because it'll help safeguard your marriage if you're able just to approach it with, hey, you know what? We can get through this. Just, just laugh our way through it for a little bit. I understand. I'm not saying then we totally just don't address some things. Just ha ha. Just laugh about it. You know, that's the cover. Just laugh about it. No. I understand we got to address some things, but at the same time, we need to be able to uh, just be able to be lighthearted in the midst of some things as well. Number four, directive for marriage, and I'm hurrying along here, intimacy. And I know our minds always go to one place concerning this, but intimacy isn't just about connecting on a physical level. Uh, it doesn't exclude it either, but it's not just that. It's also about connecting on an emotional level. But concerning the physical level, the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 4, that marriage is honorable in all. And the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Consider some of these other things concerning on a physical level. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse number 2 through 5. And I'm trying to hurry toward close. Just, just, just allow me a little more time. The Bible says, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. I think the wording of Scripture is very, very purposeful, very purposeful to avoid fornication, let every man have, and please note the phrase, his own wife. You want to avoid fornication, have your own wife. Don't have another person's wife. Don't have an unmarried woman. Have his own wife. And let every woman, just as explicit, her own husband, her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife do benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife have not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband have not power of his own body, but the wife. It says defraud ye not. In other words, refuse. Refuse ye not one the other. The man refuse the, the wife 
his body in the area of physical intimacy, nor the wife her body to her husband in the area of physical intimacy. Don't defraud one another, refuse one another. The Bible says, except, here's the exception, except it be with consent for a time. In other words, there must be some type of agreement between the man and the woman that they're going to abstain from any type of physical intimacy for a time because they're giving themselves to fasting and prayer, maybe for a decision or for something that's going on in their life. But the important thing was this, that's not to be an eternal situation right there. You're supposed to come, he says, together again. Why? That Satan tempt you not for your incontinency, which means so that Satan tempt you not for your lack of self-control. Because there is a burning desire inside of humanity to satisfy that portion of our lives. And if it goes unsatisfied within the covenant of marriage, it's going to look to be satisfied elsewhere. And so, physical intimate relations in the bond of marriage, we understand through Scripture. The marriage bed is, is honorable in all. It's undefiled. It, it's a couple's right within the sanction, within the bond of marriage. Marriage alone. There may be other circumstances for withholding from physical intimacy, but the one that was spoken of in Scripture is for that prayer and that fasting, mutually in consent and agreeing upon that. Here's something else, and I, I pondered whether or not to include this, but I'm going to. I think this is important because I've seen this sometimes. There's something else that is a hindrance, and listen to me very clearly, that's a hindrance at times to intimacy on an emotional and physical level within a marriage. And that is this, listen to me. Sin always hinders intimacy even in a marriage because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned Bible says they recognize their nakedness now they've ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil the problem there is they were trying to get knowledge aside from the relationship with God all right but now they recognize their nakedness and what do they do? They begin to hide themselves, but no, not only from God, but seemingly also from each other. I know many times they draw the picture of Adam and Eve together, but not only from God's, but from each other. Whenever sin, whenever sin is entering the picture in a marital relationship, sometimes there will be no intimacy on an emotional or physical level because there's sin within the marriage. It could be someone of one spouse doing something they shouldn't be doing and they abstain and they defraud and they refuse because there's sin going on in their life they don't want their partner to know about. Don't want anything to do with you because maybe perhaps they're having something to do with co-worker. This, that, or the other. And a good flag... I'm not saying it's always the case, but sometimes the case is that intimacy may be hindered because there's sin going on. Amen. Also identified by the APA is that they say, keep alive the early romantic, idolized images of falling in love while you're facing those sober realities of changes that are wrought by time. What are they saying? You can still have a romantic love, although you're getting owed, and your body doesn't work the same way that it used to. 
there's, there's, there's lines and furrows on your face where there used not be. Things just don't operate the way. An old preacher used to say this years ago. He said, keep your courtship and marriage and you'll keep your marriage out of court. Keep courtship and your marriage and you keep your marriage out of court. And so tonight, I just want to talk a little bit about this very important social relationship. That as humans, we have this great, great opportunity to experience with our spouse. And there's a lot of happiness in the world that comes from good marriages. And there is a lot of suffering that comes from troubled marriages. Sadly, in today's society, I think that more people are choosing to avoid marriage at all because they want to avoid the pain, if you will, of a failed marriage. And there's been a lot of people that's walked out on marriage because they put forth a very tremendous effort and sacrifice to try to maintain a good marriage to no avail. And if you'll stand with me, but I would dare to say if that 73% stat from the Census Bureau has any validity to it at all. That 73% of people who got married are still married to the first spouse. Then I would dare to say that as Christians and as adults for that matter, still choosing marriage, being that most marriages that people start in 73% last a lifetime, that those are people who are willing to take the risk, if that's what you want to call it. Willing to take the risk willing to make the necessary sacrifices, willing to, even if you will, apply biblical instruction of the word of God concerning their marriage because if they're following the APA, APA has biblical basis in what I spoke to you tonight. That in the end, I hope that they will find an identity for their marriage, a security for their marriage, a unity and intimacy for their marriage. And hopefully, by and large, there will be a personal growth between a man and a woman, a husband and wife, that will supersede probably more so than any other human relationship that they'll ever have in their life. It's all found in the crux and the atmosphere of being sanctioned by God, but not without a discipline for commitment in their home and their family. Because there'll be some time that they won't feel like loving the other. It happens. But at that moment, it's not that our love that binds us. It's our commitment that we made to that person in the sight of God that holds us on. That vehemence of love will stir back up just like embers getting stirred and the fire rekindles. But it takes commitment to stay, amen, to be able to see the outcroppings and the outworkings of that. The directives then of marriage, it's got to be a severance. There's got to be a permanence. There's got to be a unity. There's got to be intimacy on a level of emotional and physical. And for the shorthand of it, leave, cleave, unite, ignite. Amen. We embower our heads in this place. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.